God is in control. The message of Daniel encourages us to evaluate our present realities in the light of God's sovereignty and his character. Know that God is in control and know the God who is in control. He is faithful and true. He will uphold his covenant with his people eternally. He will not fail to bring into being everything that he declared. Well, hello and welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast. My name is Doug Dunbar, one of the pastors here at Gospel Chapel, and we're glad that you found us here today. In today's message, we are looking at Daniel chapter 1, and really the topic is how to live with hope and humility in a godless culture, and that's the that's the uh, subtitle of Larry Osborne's book, um, Thriving in Babylon. I'd really encourage you to check this out. Also, if you have uh, access to Right Now Media, uh, as members of our church uh, do, and if you'd like access to that, send us an email. If you don't already have that, we can get you hooked up there. It's a great video series uh, that unpacks this, and really uh, his book has formed a lot of how I think about the book of Daniel now. Uh, but today we're looking at this topic of hope. How do you live with hope and humility and and just a sense of uh, looking forward to what God is going to do even when things are rough? Because Daniel's story is pretty rough. We're talking about hope. And uh, hope is a funny word because we sometimes think of it just as wishful thinking or having a positive outlook. Uh, But Larry in his book says this, Daniel's hope had nothing to do with wishful thinking or positive visualization. He didn't wish that everything would turn out okay. He didn't visualize everything working out. He knew that everything would work out because God was in control. And so may you hear that message today. And turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. I mean Daniel chapter 1 today. How many of you remember being 14? All right. What was life like when you were 14? What's that? Spectacular. All right. No responsibilities. 14 years old. That would be 1985 for me. Do we want to hear any other dates out of that? How equipped were you for life at 14? <laughs> not, not very much, right? How, how strong was your faith at 14 years old? Yes. See, we come to Daniel chapter 1 and we tend to assume that he was a lot older. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were probably about 14 years old at the beginning of the story. So just kind of keep that in mind as you hear... Daniel chapter 1. We, we often assume they were older, but they probably weren't. We also assume that they had a strong biblical foundation to live from, but they were children of the royal house. They, they were nobility, right? And what had the kings and the nobles and the upper echelon of Israel been doing in regards to the word of God for the last number of generations? Ignoring it. And telling the prophets, go home, we don't want to hear from you. They had routinely denounced the prophets in favor of making alliances with foreign nations to provide them with safety. They may not have known a whole lot in an era where for, the mo- for, for most, 
The most of the Bible was not yet written yet, nor was it widely available. Only scrolls in the temple. There wasn't even a synagogue system yet. There's no printing press, no personal youth edition of the Torah to take to youth group. They had come out of a culture that was supposed to be infused with the word of God, but they were a people that were largely being ignorant of it and living as if it didn't matter, and that's why they're in exile. So a little bit of context shaping before we get into Daniel. And and before we get into this even further, look at the context of the whole book and the foundation and the theological point the author is trying to show the readers. First note that the book begins with a note about the beginning of the exile. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 1. This is probably about 605, 606. So even 20 years before the final fall of Jerusalem in 586. There's a removal of treasure from the temple of the Lord. And we saw this in the end of 2 Chronicles a few weeks back. And a small group is taken into captivity specifically to be trained to serve at the courts of the king of Babylon. And now look quickly at verse 21. We'll read the whole chapter in a few minutes. I just want to paint the big picture here. Look at the end of chapter 1. Last verse. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 70 years later. So chapter 1 suddenly covers, you know, he gives us the bookends. When Daniel went into exile, and then when Cyrus decreed the exile was over. So Daniel is in, is is taking place, all of this takes place during the 70 years of exile. But again, we have to then back up and ask another question. To whom is the book written? Who is reading it? And what does the author hope to impart to his readers? And in broad strokes, here's the heart of the whole thing. This book is written to a post-exilic audience back in the land of Israel in the process or already on the other side of Ezra and Nehemiah, but still under foreign domination, still in many ways a people in exile, though they were back in their land. They are still hoping for God to deliver them completely, to restore their autonomy and authority as a sovereign nation, to once again live under the blessing of a Davidic king and all that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, an eternal kingdom that will be the envy of the nations, and they're in a period of waiting and longing. Because after Babylon comes the Persian and the Median Empire. We get that right in Daniel. You've got uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar and then Belshazzar dies and, uh, uh, and Darius takes over and Cyrus and there's a regime change even. Lots of things in flux. And the people of Israel, even after Cyrus order, orders them to go back home and rebuild their temple, they're still under foreign oppression. They're still wondering when the exile will be over. And we read this all the way through the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And when we get to the New Testament, they're still waiting for freedom. 400 years of waiting. Daniel's covers 70 years. 
And this book is written to encourage the hearts of people who are waiting for generations. And though the temple is rebuilt, it is a pale reflection of the glory it once had. The book of Haggai calls attention to the reality as older people who would remember what the temple was like after Solomon built it near the end before it was destroyed. They would grieve at the loss of the beauty and the majesty of the temple. And they're waiting for the day that God will bless them so it may once again be marvelous and beautiful and a representation of God's presence with his people on earth. They're waiting. They're longing. They're hoping. It's in this context that the message of Daniel speaks of hope and patience and wisdom. If Daniel could remain faithful during the exile for 70 years, serving under pagan kings who believed polytheism, and, and they could thrive in that environment, then maybe we can too. And even the darkness that you're living in can be met with the light of God and faith in Him. Maybe God will do it again. There's also the perspective that the people in waiting must always keep something in mind. And this runs throughout the whole book of Daniel. It's kind of the theological theme that ties it all together. And it's this, that no matter what may seem to be happening on the world stage, God is in control of who is in control. God is in control of who is in control. And in the face of a life of pain and confusion, there's hope because God is faithful. And he is in control. So keep that in mind as we read this chapter. Let's stand together as I read chapter 1 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, son, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they would stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and he gave Daniel favor. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see 
that you were in worse condition than those youths who are of your own age. So you would, be, you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. So God is in control of who is in control. Three times in this chapter, there's a key phrase, God gave. It's in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17. What did God give? First, he gave the kingdom of Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And so from this perspective, the exile was not just a result of Israel's sin, but of God's hand, his work. It's something he caused to happen. God was in control. Second, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the overseer. And thirdly, God gave Daniel and his friends what they needed to thrive in their work. And this is the theological heart and soul of the book of Daniel, cover to cover. And we are to hear this reverberate in our hearts and souls. God is in control regardless of of how dark things get in life. And Daniel's existence here in Babylon is actually a little darker than we sometimes think. Daniel, we usually think of this passage, and what are the other stories in Daniel that we're usually really kind of aware of? Lions, Daniel and the lion's den, right? And the fiery furnace with Rackshack and Benny, right? <laughs> All the VeggieTales fans here. Don't bow to that big chocolate bunny. And really, that's the only three real conflicts they have in this culture that, that is written down. Every, uh, the rest of the 70 years, they seem to be getting along quite well. But the theological heart and soul of the book is that God is in control. The message of Daniel encourages us to evaluate our present realities in the light of God's sovereignty and his character. Know that God is in control and know the God who is in control. He is faithful and true. He will uphold his covenant with his people eternally. He will not fail to bring into being everything that he declared. 
If God declared our salvation is accomplished not by works, but by his grace through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his victory over death and evil in the resurrection of Christ, his defeat of Satan and evil is certain. And if God said that we will be raised as Christ is raised, seated with him in glory, redeemed and glorified as his children, and if he has declared us co-heirs with Christ, adopted and precious in his sight, then don't panic when the world goes crazy because you've got something that goes way beyond it. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-7, I think ties in really well with what we're going to see in out of this passage. 1 Peter. Where are you? Peter starts off this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and in there, I think, in, in encapsulates really what we're going to think about today in, in Dan, in, through the story of Daniel. That God has worked just this marvelous salvation for us, but that doesn't mean life gets easy. It actually means that we might be tested. And indeed, the testing is there to deepen our faith in the God who is in control of everything. So that's our first point. This leads us to the first point. Faithfulness to God is tested. Verse 8. Daniel and his three friends, and don't forget there's more of them. There's more than four, right? We just hear the four, but there's others. There's others because they're uh, comparing them at the end of this test with others. It's just Daniel and the four that we hear of. Their faith is tested. Again, they're likely 14 years old at this time. They've been taken captive, led to Babylon. They've been given different names. Their, their original names, their, their Hebrew names, spoke of the nature and, and the relationship of Yahweh, God of Israel, with them. Their new names speak of the gods of Babylon. And so this name change is a theological underpinning to it. They're also going to need to learn a new language. They won't be allowed to speak Hebrew. They've got to spend three years in studying the literature and the wisdom of the Babylonians. And from uh, archaeological evidence, because we've got lots of stuff, and lots of tablets and cuneiform uh, writing and clay tablets, the, 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 the wisdom in the literature of the Babylonians was things like astrology and how to read entrails to, to, to define the future, um, and a whole host of different things. Three years of studying that. 
And they actually passed with honors. Hmm, interesting. They're given all sorts of training in the management of the kingdom and the religious system of Babylon. The two are not separated. They go together in this world. In other words, they were getting a three-year immersive study in the occult in a new language in a foreign land under oppressive rulers who wanted to assimilate them into their leadership team so that their parents in the homeland wouldn't rebel but would fall in line. It's pretty much the same playbook as a residential school system. We just want to assimilate you so you disappear. See, this is what empires do. They seek to replace and destroy one culture by replacing it with another to cement their power, authority over conquered people. This is what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Now, there's another thing in here that you might miss in this passage. It doesn't come up on the Sunday school flannel graph boards. <laughs> Who's in charge of Daniel and everybody? The chief of the what? That's uncomfortable. <laughs> Do we find Daniel and his name and his family recorded anywhere else in Scripture? Not in Chronicles, not in Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, outside of this, I don't think they're mentioned. The chronicler and Ezra and Nehemiah who were meticulous with genealogies of those who came back show no knowledge of Daniel and company. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning, even you, you read through the prophets and usually this is the prophecy of so-and-so who is the son of so-and-so and you get like a family, you, you get to know what family he belongs to. Daniel and his friends, it's, it's all, it's kind of stands out. In a Jewish culture, who you're connected with, who your dad was, your grandfather and everything else was very important. The silence here is kind of deafening. Also, add to this, you got the best-looking young men studying to work for the king, and they're going to enter the service of the court around 17 years old, and there's also a harem of the best-looking young women in the land in the same area, putting the two together yet. How do you protect the king's harem from all these really good-looking young men? Make sure they just don't have anything there's a good chance that Daniel and his friends are also eunuchs. What are these guys gone through already? No name. You're going to replace your name with the name of a pagan god. You're not going to be able to eat the food that you're used to. You need to have a different diet. They're going to change your diet. You're going to change your language. You're going to change your education. Then you'll also be emasculated. These guys are going through some rough stuff. How tested has your faith been lately? Anyone got a job where you need three years of occult training in a new language? Change your name to reflect demon gods? Been dragged off from your home in junior high? How do these guys keep their faith in God in the face of this kind of thing? And say over and over, God gave. God gave. God is still in control. Oh, and now we're going to eat different. Your diet's going to change. You are what you eat. 
Now, most of what has happened to these young men up to now was outside their control, but this one, there's maybe a way to maintain some distinctiveness in Babylon, some way to maintain their identity. Now, this request that Daniel makes here doesn't really have a biblical basis. Eating meat was fine. Drinking wine was fine. This has less to do with dietary law than it does with sustaining their identity. Now, John Goldingay in his commentary says, Daniel's abstinence symbolizes his avoiding assimilation. He was working to not be completely removed from his heritage and his cultural identity as a member of God's chosen people. It's subtle, and it's quiet, and it's effective. He's standing against the powers of the time, but it is done in radical humility. And that is important for us to see in this story and in the rest of Daniel. He consistently takes the road of humility and patience and quiet resistance to the powers that be. He maintains his faith and his hope in God, all while being the wisest, most trusted person under a pagan, polytheistic, despotic, and sometimes highly unstable and insane king. Right? Read the story. It's like Nebuchadnezzar kind of loses it a few times. So what's going on here? Because it's not about, you know, I'm sorry, Rick Warren, but the Daniel plan isn't a diet thing. It's not what, that's not what was going on here. I mean, I think it's his most best-selling book or something like that. And it's, it's a misreading of the text, misappropriation. Yeah, maybe veg, more vegetables and water be good for you. Might help you out a bit, especially in a culture that eats lots of processed food. Anyway, again, rabbit trail, not part of the text. <clears throat> this is about avoiding assimilation into a culture that is desperately trying to make them disappear. And in a similar way, this is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5, turn the other cheek and go the second mile. This isn't a call to be doormats to abusers, but to subtly remind those in power and authority that we serve a higher authority. To turn the other cheek is to say to the one striking you, to defame you and to humiliate you in public, that the attempt has failed. Try again. It's actually an act of standing up. To go the second mile, in context here, is that a Roman soldier was allowed to just grab you off the street and force you to carry his gear for a mile, but he couldn't do it any further. To tell him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a second mile with you, is to say, I'm in charge of this situation right now, not you. And so it's not being a doormat, it's actually saying, there's a higher authority that I belong to that trumps your authority over me. And I think this is what Daniel's doing here too. It's not an act of subjugation, it is an act of resistance. In Babylon, Daniel and his friends knew that they were not in control of what was happening to them, but they also knew that Babylon was not in control. Daniel states this clearly, that God was in control. God gave, God gave, God gave. When that's the foundation of your faith, it will be tested. But when it is tested, it can then be strengthened as you live in greater confidence 
knowing that the God who is in control is working for your good in the situation. The second point we have today is that God's faithfulness to God is affirmed. Faithfulness to God is affirmed. Verses 9 to 16. So Daniel makes this suggestion. We're not going to defile ourselves with this food. Here's what I think we should do. And the overseer, the, the, the chief of the eunuchs, he's afraid the king would notice and execute him. Read ahead into Daniel, you'll find out this isn't an idle fear. This isn't just something he's making up. This is a real thing. I'm going to lose my head if things don't go the way the king wants. So Daniel doesn't push the issue with him. He approaches their specific guard. He doesn't want to endanger anyone. He doesn't want to cause a scene. He's looking for a simple, subtle, and yet effective solution. And he finds it. The Gospel Project notes state that Daniel and his friends acted with wisdom and grace, both to remain faithful to God and to honor God's image bearers, even in the midst of a dangerous, compromising situation. See, they're they're acting in humility and they're acting to honor the people that are over them even though they're in this horrible situation. They're still honoring the people that God has put over them in authority. At no point do Daniel and the others erupt in disrespect towards those in authority over them. They were determined to not defile themselves with the food of the king, but they were equally determined to pursue their convictions with gentleness and Respect, And this is what Peter calls us to do when it comes to sharing the reasons for the hope we have in us, we have within us to those who ask us, do this, declare the good news of Jesus Christ, but do it with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. Daniel and company do this consistently throughout the narrative. They never panic. They do not demand their way. They do not rebel loudly. They quietly and patiently in humility stand their ground and allow God to vindicate them. Again, we only have three reports of them needing to do this out of 60 to 70 years. Under at least four different pagan polytheistic authoritarian rulers. This instance, the golden idol, and, and, and the, uh, the, the situation that led to the lion's den. That's it. And in every single situation, they display a quiet, settled confidence in God. They walk in hope, in humility and wisdom. Colossians 4, 5 to 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. We can tend to become unreasonable or angry when we forget this key truth, that God is in control of who is in control. In Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon, he says this, the moment our problems seem bigger than our God, we are either seeing poorly or remembering inaccurately. The moment our problems seem bigger than our God, we are either seeing poorly or we're remembering inaccurately. We don't always have a clear perspective of our situation. Sometimes we're looking at the world through the lens of our political views, our nationalistic views, our racial views, and we're not seeing it through the lens of God's character revealed in Scripture. If you want a succinct definition of discipleship, it might be something like this. 
learning to see my reality and my life and my circumstances through the prism of God's character, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, declared in the Bible. In this situation and in all the others, God was not obligated to do anything for Daniel and his friends. And his friends even say that when it comes to the fiery furnace, right? You throw us in there, fine. If God saves us, great. If not, oh well. But we're not gonna, we're not gonna be faithless to our God. They leave it up to God whether he's gonna save them or not. They don't demand that he save them. God's not obligated to do anything for Daniel and his friends. Just because they went vegan doesn't mean that God had to do something miraculous. It's not how it works. Daniel's purpose was not to have a clean diet. Daniel's purpose was to sustain his identity as a member of God's family, to glorify God in the midst of a situation that could easily snuff it out. Remember, there were others that didn't follow Daniel and company until they were forced to. And then God affirmed their desire to remain faithful to him by granting them further favor in Babylon, by allowing them not just to survive the exile, but to thrive and to be a blessing to those who would otherwise destroy them. Again, God gave. They didn't earn it. The gifts of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, specifically to Daniel's supernatural ability to interpret dreams and visions, which, by the way, was a key thing in Babylonian thought and culture. Like to be able to understand and interpret dreams was, was seen as divine favor from the gods. And so here is God gifting Daniel and his friends to thrive in the culture on the culture's terms. Something that also comes up and runs through the whole rest of the book. And so God affirms their faithfulness. And thirdly, God rewards their faithfulness. Faithfulness to God is rewarded. Now, verse 17 to 21 is more of a summary that sums up the rest of the book. All four men, they're now 17 to 18 years old. Remember, this was a three-year training process. The, that training process is done. We're now three years ahead. So at verse 17, we've, we, we've moved ahead on the timeline. And they're found to be the best of the best. They find themselves in the royal court and they stay there. It's somewhat ironic that in the land of Shinar, back in verse 2, the land of the Chaldeans from which God called Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, these men were now fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, that God blessed them and they responded by being a blessing to the nations. They continued serving the nations effectively and powerfully, even as Joseph did in Egypt. Their faithfulness is rewarded. They were faithful in a little thing. Issue of what to eat. Quiet and humble and maintaining their distinctiveness and diet, and God gave them more. And in this, their faith in God was deepened. This was one step on their journey that would last the rest of their lives. They became men who could say, even if our God doesn't save us from the furnace, we will not bow to the idol. God didn't have to prove himself to them. Their faith was in his character and his nature, not his blessings that they got. 
They were rewarded with an experience of God's goodness and grace. And so what they received wasn't just an easy life. I think they continued to have a difficult time in Babylon. The rest of the story bears that out. They had to navigate life in a pagan palace, a polytheistic culture, every day. Yet they did it with wisdom and humility. That was not easy to maintain. They didn't get rescued from the situation. They experienced the God who could, would, and did uphold them in the midst of the situation. And so Daniel and his friends grow in their knowledge and their experience of God and it deepens their hope, allows them to walk humbly with their God and allows them to exercise the wisdom that God gave them in response to a changing and challenging life with grace and with patience. Because they came to know more and more that God is in control of who is in control. And that's the lesson we need to take today. Now Daniel's writing in hindsight, right? He's writing all of this from a distance of being able to look back on his life. He's looking back after a lifetime of walking with God and serving in this pagan environment and seeing God show up over and over again. It sure would be nice if the situation you might be facing right now that's weighing you down and keeping you up at night could be seen so clearly. But Daniel only learned this the hard way, and unfortunately we all do. Faith doesn't grow apart from being tested. That's how life works. We come to a deeper knowledge of God when we have to trust Him and wait for Him. And maybe when we get to look back on our lives, we finally figure out that He came through even if we didn't see how at the time. So what realities in your life right now do you need to embrace even if it's painful? and not what you wanted your life to be about. Daniel had to go through some pretty drastic changes as a 14-year-old kid, and God met him. God may be using your painful situation to open your heart to the greater passion you need to have for him above all else that you might be wanting. Sometimes the pain in our lives reveals that we have a passion for something other than God himself. If something other than God could heal the pain in your heart right now, that might be the idol. Would you be willing to surrender your pain and the dream that you have for your life to the Lordship and the care of Jesus Christ? Do you actually trust him with the deepest hurts of your heart? What conviction might you need to uphold with humility and gentleness so that those around you can experience God's work in and through the way you navigate life and the challenges you're facing? Each king that Daniel serves eventually declares that Yahweh is the only God. But it takes time. It takes years of patient, humble, gentle service. And it takes walking through the fire or spending a night with the lions, but it happens. 
God may be using your story and mine already to change someone else's experience of God. We just might not see it yet. Don't give up hope in the dark night that you're facing. Daniel also, again, he's not named in Ezra and Nehemiah along with those that returned from the exile and he may, may never have experienced that we don't know. So can you continue to walk in hope and humility and wisdom while you wait for God to act and have faith that he will do, but it might not even be in your lifetime and you may not get to experience the answer. That's hard. Walking in a life of faith is never easy. It will always be tested. But as we walk in faithfulness to God, he will affirm our faithfulness to him. And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Walking in faith doesn't always mean that we're going to have a life that works out well or that is easy. A life of faith can lead to suffering. Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of all the heroes of the faith, ends this way. After seeing like all of these people, these women, you know, women received their dead back, back from the grave. Uh, things were awesome, and, and, and these, these people won the day. But then Hebrew, the author says this, others, faithful ones, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Faithfulness does not always mean our lives will be trouble-free. Jesus told that often. Sometimes we just don't take him seriously. Sometimes we believe that following God and being a good person means that good things will happen for us, but that's actually karma, not Christ. In Awana, this last few months, we've memorized a couple verses. One of them is John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Hebrew text ends verse 3 with Selah. Probably means just take a break and reflect on that reality. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Let's pray.
Lord, our world is full of trouble. And it's not just on the news, sometimes it's right in our homes. It's in our relationships. Lord, help us to take refuge in you. To know that you're in control of who is in control. That you have said, I will never leave you, I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you, I will come to you. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be with me also. And when you command us to go and make disciples, you end the whole thing with a promise. I'm with you to the very end of the age. So Lord, this Advent season, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. The word become flesh to dwell among us. The glory of God revealed for us. So Lord, in the darkness and the waiting, the pain maybe that we're going through in our lives right now, Help us to come back to this very basic reality that you are with us. Even if we're carried off to Babylon and it just feels like there's no end of the exile, you're with us. And you're coming back for us. There will be a day when all the pain and the sorrow and the dysfunction of this world will be no more. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes and every pain from our hearts. And we will be with the Lord forever. And so, Father, in the challenges that we face in our world and in our lives, help us to remain faithful to you who is so faithful to us and that you're with us, and that you are in control of who is in control. Help us to live in that reality every day. In Jesus' name, amen.